Uh, and today we're going to be continuing our series in Acts. More specifically, we're looking at Paul's second apostolic ministry, his second mission, going around preaching the gospel. And there's a map here, and you'll be able to see uh, that he's reached Europe. So Europe is this section over here in the corner, the other side of the Aegean Sea. And last, year, uh, last week we saw that Paul was in Philippi, and that's right at the top there. And today he's moving down to Thessalonica and Berea and down across to Athens. And that's where we are today in our story. Now, I don't know if you've ever visited a different culture, if you've ever been anywhere else, but often there's some social cues that you can miss being a, a Brit. And there's that age-old joke of Brits abroad who think that communicating with the locals wherever they go just means speaking slower and louder. You know, whatever that is. Uh, but there's often these social cues that we miss. HSBC ran a series of adverts a little while ago where they were talking about the different cultures. And uh, there was one advert that said, in some cultures, it's okay to fall asleep on the shoulder of a commuter if you're on a train or a, a tube. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? You just kind of <laughs> pop, a, pop your head down on the person next to you, even if you don't know them. Whereas it said that in other cultures, it's actually really offensive to show somebody the soles of your feet. Really, really offensive, so you're not supposed to do that. Now, I, however much experience you've had with it, I wanted to give us a cultural lesson this morning. So uh, I've been very lucky through my work to visit China a couple of times. And the one thing that I have been unbelievably amazed by is the differences in culture between China and the UK. So I'm going to give you two scenarios. The first is the business meeting. Here's the business meeting. The first thing you need to know about a business meeting is at every business meeting, they will take a photo to mark the meeting. So this was a meeting that I had, and at the end, you all have to stand next to the sign, have a photo, because that's proof that the meeting took place, okay? Now, the other thing you've got to know about meetings in China is at the beginning of every meeting, you need to have green tea. So I've brewed some green tea for us. Who's thirsty? Anybody fancy some green tea? Come on. Yeah, come out, grab a green tea. Who else is thirsty? There you go. Green tea for you. Abo, green tea. Come and have some green tea. Lovely. There you are. That's the way it goes. Who needs a cup? Yeah, yeah, you're done. This is my last cup. I'm out. There you go. You're lucky enough. There you go. So there's some green tea. Already I feel like we're learning, okay? We're picking up some of the culture of China as we go. The next thing you've got to know is about the business meeting. It's the way you give out business cards. Anybody here got a business card in their wallet? Am I the only one that carries them around? Come on, if you've got a business card, Steve, bring it out. We'll do the business card dance. That's what we call it, okay? This is the way we do it. So in England, if I had a business card to give, how would I give the business card? I'd just kind of hand it over, right? There's my business card. That's how you swap business cards. Not so in China. Not so in China. Here you go. We go again. So in China, Steve, it goes like this. You ready? Like that. And then you do the same, perfect. Then we swap like that, and then we study each other's business card. You ready? That's very good. Very good business card, Steve. There you go. No, no, that's it. That's it. That's the way you do it, like that. So that, there you go. That's something else we've learned about business in China. And I've got Steve's business card if anybody wants it at the end. Now, the third thing you've got to know about China is once the business is done and you go out for a meal, you'll all sit around a table in the restaurant, but only one menu will come out. And the person who's paying for the meal takes the menu and orders for everyone. Okay? So early doors, you've got to learn, don't take the menu, because you've got a very hefty bill coming your way. 
all right? But it also means that you've got no say in what you're eating. You've just got to eat whatever's been given. So who wants to try some new food this morning? These are Chinese steamed buns. And I've got beef and I've got chicken. Who wants to give them a go? Anyone? I'll come to you. Chicken. I think the chicken one's that one. Here you are. Let me know what you think. Anybody else having one? There you go. Graham at the back. Good job, Graham. Here, I'll have a taste of that. See what you think. See, I, I ate all sorts of weird and wonderful things in China, and I realized it's best not to ask. Though I'm not giving you anything weird this morning. It's just a steam bun. They taste quite nice, don't they, guys? Not bad? Yeah? Sharing the wealth. What do you think? Good? There you go. So the food's not bad either. And the, uh, the final thing you've got to learn, especially if you're going anywhere off the beaten track, is that you need to use chopsticks wherever you go. I was in a place called Zhangzhou, and you couldn't find a knife and a fork for love nor money. So does anybody want to show, show off their chopstick skills? Anybody do chopsticks well? Come on, Emma, give us a go. See if you can use chopsticks for us. Excuses, excuses. Come on, get the chopsticks on. How about that, hey? Round of applause. So there you go. Whatever the culture you're in, you need to start thinking about different things, different ways of doing things, and you need to adopt the culture that you're in if you want to make any headway. Even in the UK, it's something that we think about. I'll tell you how much discussion I've had recently about the positioning of Bibles in our church. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes you'll turn up and the Bibles are at the door. Sometimes you'll turn up and somebody will hand one to you just before the preach. And at the moment, you'll find the Bibles are sat on the chairs. And we've been talking an awful lot about this because it really matters to some cultures. Especially if you're Muslim, having a, a, book of the, a, a religious book just on the floor, strewn on the floor, is a really offensive thing. So for any Muslims coming into this church, we don't want Bibles on the floor because of what it portrays. So we've had these conversations about how can we help different cultures to engage with our church. So, Bible's up, everyone. So, today's passage looks at culture and how Paul and his traveling band of brothers have to adapt to the different cultures that they're in to see the gospel spread. So, turn with me to Acts 17, and we'll start reading together. It's on page 1113 of your church Bibles. 1113. And let me start reading. When Paul and his companions had passed through the Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they let, put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. Let's pause there for just a second. So we see that Paul's moved on from Philippi to Thessalonica on his missionary journey through Europe. We'll stick the map back up again for you. He's now working his way along a road 
down here, you see there's lots of dots on this road in Europe. And that's called the Via Ignatia. And he's picking up different cities as he goes. And this journey from Philippi to Thessalonica was probably about 100 miles. Thessalonica was also the capital of Macedonia. And we've got to remember from last week in Acts 16, Paul had a vision from God about a man in Macedonia. So he'd have been really eager to reach Macedonia's capital, Thessalonica. It's a big stop along the road and a perfect place for a big church. It's also got a port and a major trade route. It would have been like an epicenter for, for commercial business. He's here quite a short amount of time, but whilst he's here, he sees and does some amazing things through God, and he establishes a strong church. And we know that he establishes a really strong church because the letters of one and two Thessalonians in your Bibles were written to the church that was established here during this mission. And it's one that it's a church that Paul holds really dearly. Paul and Silas were they they were there and they were very fond of the people. In one Thessalonians two, I'll put it up here for you. Paul says, "You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel in the face of strong opposition." That was a letter he wrote to the church in Thessalonica after leaving. So we know that we're talking about a church that was established during Paul's mission trip to Thessalonica, because Paul says so in his letter, and he even talks about the struggles that he had in Philippi. And if you were here last week, you'll have heard uh, Paul and his, his friends caused such a stir in Philippi that they ended up getting thrown in jail. Then God shook the doors of the, the prison awake, uh, and the, the jailer ended up coming to, to know Jesus with all of his family. In spite of opposition, Paul moves to Thessalonica and preaches the gospel. And now another passage from 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul continues, and he says to the church, But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our joy and glory. You see how much affection Paul's got for the church there in Thessalonica. So much so that it's on his heart to return to them. He calls them his glory and joy. That'd be a lovely thing to be called, wouldn't it? To be called somebody's glory and joy. So what happened in Thessalonica? Paul and Timothy and Silas and probably others, they arrive there and they go straight to the synagogue because that's the, that's the way that Paul's been uh, doing his ministry. He heads straight for the Jewish believers in the place that they gather. You remember in Philippi, there wasn't enough Jews to even have a synagogue, so he had to go and find them somewhere else. But we can see that there are some believing Jews in the city, so Paul does what he always does, heads straight to them and tells them about the gospel of Jesus. The gospel was declared and found the ears of Jews and Greeks. The passage says some of the Jews believed, as well as a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This is our Thessalonian church, the one that the, the letters are written to. But others in the synagogue were so offended by what Paul was saying, that Jesus was the Messiah, that they rounded up a posse from the marketplace. Imagine going down to the Dolphin Center and rounding up a posse and saying, right, let's go and do them in. They started writing, okay? That's what, that's what happened. They marched to where they thought Paul and Silas and his friends were staying to set the matter straight. They were defying Caesar. That was their big crime. 
And in Rome, this was a really big deal, okay? Because the whole point about Caesar is that he was supposed to be the greatest, like the king of kings. Caesar was supposed to be the one that everybody kind of had on the throne as their most important figurehead. So this guy, Paul, coming along and saying, no, 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 it's not about Caesar, it's about Jesus, was like really, really countercultural and actually was even punishable by death in some cases. They caused such a stir for the gospel wherever they go, especially in these Roman cities. This is a cultural revolution, and they're spreading across Europe as they go. So this leads me very quickly to my first point this morning, and that is that the gospel should always cause a reaction. The gospel should always cause a reaction. And we should expect it to as well. When Paul and co. were preaching the gospel, they saw many people saved. Praise God. So many so that that a church was established there, one that Paul absolutely loved. But they also angered a lot of people. The posse came and the riots started. And I think we can see that too, don't we? When we're talking to our, our friends and relatives, people at work about Jesus, some people can be quite receptive, might come along to church, come along to Christmas events, whilst others are like, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with that. No, no. That's all, you know, you're just a God botherer, whatever they say. You know, other people can be quite hostile to it. We can even see that in our culture. Who are you to judge me? Have you ever had somebody say that to you? Well, I'm afraid we could and should expect for it to happen. If it happens to Paul, it can certainly happen to us. But it didn't put Paul off, and it shouldn't put us off either. Let's continue to preach the gospel and be bold and unashamed. Simon Gilbo, when he was with us, uh, and if you've not heard him speak, it's on the Gateway Church website. He's, uh, uh, he's spent 17 years in Burundi preaching the gospel there and had some amazing words of wisdom for us. But amongst the things that he said is, are you going to choose the cross or are you going to choose comfort? Are you going to choose faith or are you going to choose fear? And I've still got those words ringing in my ears now, even as we're talking about this. We've got to not be afraid to preach the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection. We've got to choose those things in those moments. It won't be easy to preach the gospel. It never is. And we'll face skeptics and cynics and maybe even anger when people are faced with it. Thankfully, we're not going to get thrown in prison for it this morning. But we should be no less bold. So there's a quick point for you there. The gospel will always cause a reaction. But that doesn't mean we should stop saying it. Let's keep reading. Let's see where Paul goes next on his journey today. The next section, in Berea, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and they left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's pause there. Keep your finger in the page, because we'll come back to it. So the team hit Berea, where they meet a different culture to the one that they'd experienced previously as opposed to the guys in Thessalonica or the guys in Philippi, now we find a different group of people who are of nobler character. That requires them to change the way that they preach the gospel again. They've got to understand that culture so that they can preach the gospel in a different way. Like our cultural lesson about 
going to China and the things we might need to do when we're there, Paul and the team had to think about how to speak to the people in a way that they would understand. They examined his words, it says in the text, and many came to faith there too. They were enthusiastic to hear about it, praise God. But it wasn't long before that posse, pitchforks in hand, from Thessalonica caught up with them, leaving them with a tough choice to stay or not to stay. Timothy and Silas decide stay, whereas Paul heads to Athens. And it's in Athens that we will spend the rest of our morning. So let me finish off Acts 17 for you. In Athens, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where he said to them, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, even, uh, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and that is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not have to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, Athens, at this time, was the center of the modern world. Five centuries before Paul pitched up, Athens was the global center of philosophy and art and literature and knowledge. Though Rome had taken over as the cultural center of the region, Athens had retained a lot of this status, and it was still very well known for its philosophies and its thinking, and it had a strong university there as well, okay? So it was a really big city. Now, if you grew up in, in the UK, you might have done some, uh, some Greek history as a part of your history lessons. I know I did. So you'll know... You'll have heard names like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. These guys are are credited with the development of Western philosophy. 
When we think of Greece in this period, we think about ornate stone statues. This guy here is Zeus. We think of poets like Homer and the birth of the Olympics where top athletes were pitted against one another. This is the Athens we're talking about. We might also think about Greek mythology like Zeus here, god of the sky with the lightning bolt in his hand. Poseidon, the god of the sea, or Hades, the god of the dead. Even Disney cashed in. There's uh, Hercules. Made a lot of money with their, uh, with their movie all about this mythology. And we can still see a lot of it today as well. Uh, the company Nike. Nike is the uh, Greek goddess of victory. So they named their company after a Greek goddess of victory. Or what about the, uh, the god of time, Kronos, where we get the word chronology. So even a lot of the, the lexicon, the words that we use today, come from this period. The passage also refers to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So I'll tell you what they are very quickly, just to give you some understanding. The Epicureans were teaching happiness as a way of living. They thought that the gods, if there were any, were so far removed from earth that they had absolutely nothing to do with, with life on earth and that the world was due to chance. Therefore, there was no judgment. There was, death was the end. Epicureans might say things like, you've only got one life, live it to the fullest, make yourself happy. That's what life's all about, happiness. The Stoics, on the other hand, were teaching about living in harmony with nature, being at one with nature. They were big believers in fate and thought everyone should do their duty on earth, that we all had a duty to live hand in hand with nature. So we're in a city with a mixed bag of religions, teachings, gods, philosophies, knowledge, desire. It all kind of came together. One writer said of Athens in this period is that it was easier to find a god there than a man, while another said it was just one great altar. That's the way that you've got to think about Athens in this period. Paul's gospel needed to cut through multiple worldviews. So that's what Paul's work, walking into. It's quite the backdrop, isn't it? How do you share a, the gospel to a society that's got so many different views and religions that thinks it's thought its way to the truth? They've got a God for every occasion, and just in case they've missed one, they've made up an altar to an unknown God, just, to, just so they're safe, just so there's any gods out there that they've not thought of that get offended. Well, they've got it covered. They've got one there. And this should cause us to laugh. It's funny. They were so God-obsessed and so confused about what they believed that they had extra altars to gods that might not have even existed just in case they missed one. How on earth do you tell a culture that's been this well-established for centuries, a culture that thinks that they've got it all figured out, that they're wrong? What do we read that Paul does? Well, he tries to reason with them through their culture. He sees a city full of idols, white statues, depicting Greek gods, and he was distressed. It says in the passage that he was distressed. And you can imagine he would be. He's come to tell people about Jesus, and he's literally confronted with the fruits of their sin. Everywhere he looks, he sees different statues depicting different gods and different belief systems. In fact, the original translation from the, the passage in Acts that we're reading could be better translated that Athens was a city smothered by idols, literally smothered in them. You can't move from there. I wonder what Paul might say about our culture in Dorset and what he might step into when he sees it. We, I suppose, haven't got that same in-your-face, statuesque scene that is in Athens. There's no kind of, our gods aren't uh, emblazoned in marble as we walk down the roads. But what about the over-sexualized advertising that we see everywhere we go? Everything we see on our television screens, 
even our homes designed for excess and comfort, might those be the things that Paul would see as the idols of our age? We've got shops offering endless finance plans to help cater for our every need, such as our, our desire for comfort. It's so hard to take an outsider's view, isn't it, on our culture, but we know Western society's got its issues, whether it's political correctness or sexuality or overindulgence. So Paul's in Athens, and he is so disgusted with the sin that he's found. Writing about this passage, John Stott puts it this way. God has promoted Jesus to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. Whenever he's denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. That's how Paul felt, seeing the idols and false gods where Jesus should rightfully be sat. It distressed him greatly and it moved him into action. And here's the thing about Paul in this moment. Because if I was confronted with such an amazing depravity of sin, I would be tempted to do one of two things. The first thing is to be like, I mean, the whole thing's pointless anyway. I mean, look, they're just too far gone. How on earth are we going to change this culture that's so well established? Or the second thing I might do is get in a huddle with my Christian mates and be like, man, these guys, these guys don't get it, do they? We get it. We, all, of, all of us, we get it. But these guys don't get it. But Paul did none of those things. He was moved to action. So he finds the synagogue and he finds the marketplace. He finds the places where people gather. And he immediately gets to work preaching God's word. So much so that the more seasoned philosophers come aware and invite him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was named after the Greek god Ares uh, and could be translated as the hill, or the hill of Ares. Or you might sometimes hear it called Mars Hill uh, because that's what the Romans would have called it, Mars Hill. And the Areopagus was a place for religion and education and morals to be discussed and debated. The philosophers, they met there and they, they considered themselves the custodians of philosophy and religion and knowledge. They would sit and, and talk day after day and the passage tells us that in brackets there. You saw them say, that's all these guys did. They just sat around day after day talking about the latest, uh, the latest fad and the latest, the latest uh, knowledge, the latest religion. It was once a council over legal matters, and it still did a, a little bit of legal presiding, but most of its legal powers had been transferred away. So Paul was creating such a splash that he gets an invite to the grown-ups table. He's here, right? Now he's able to, to talk to the guys that really are driving and leading a lot of where this philosophy is coming from. It's the place where Paul can go to confront culture and declare that his religion, that Jesus was the only religion that could bring eternal life. And how does he start? He starts by telling them about their own culture. Oh, people of Athens, he says. I can see you're very religious. Paul knows the real truth and he despises the sin he sees in Athens. So he could have gone in all guns blazing, couldn't he? You're wrong, you're wrong. No, this isn't the way. But instead, he goes with respect and understanding of what these Greeks needed to hear to understand the gospel. As I said, these Greeks were so worried about offending God, they'd forgotten, offending gods that they'd forgotten about, they even had an altar to an unknown God, just in case. And that's where Paul starts. He's saying, hey, you know this unknown God that you worship? Well, I know who he is, and he's the only God you need. He then preached the gospel and told them about this God who created the heavens and the earth, who doesn't need temples built by human hands. Why? Because he created all things. He gives us the breath in our lungs. We are his temples now. He lives in every one of us. He doesn't live in a shrine or an altar. You can't limit him. 
And more than that, anyone can know him if they reach out to him. Paul's so good at this that he even starts quoting their own poets back to them. He's quoting a poem that was written about the god Zeus, and he, and he, and he refers instead to our God. He's saying, the words are right, but you're focusing on the wrong God here, guys. This is the God that you should worship. Zeus won't save you. Zeus, Zeus won't bring eternal life. Only Jesus will. So he tells them about Jesus and that one day we'll all be judged by him and that he will rule in justice forever over his people and that he is the only God that you need. Of this passage, another commentator writes this. Paul was careful not to disparage the culture of those with whom he shared the gospel. He was happy to honor their thinkers because he knew that every culture understands a few basic elements of the gospel. If their poet grasped things about Zeus which were true about Yahweh, he would take that as his starting point. So that's what he's doing. He's using their culture to reason with them about the gospel, bringing it around. Go Paul, eh? He uses their culture to confront their sin head on and reason with them that Jesus is the only way to life. Paul was so passionate in his preaching that some believed there and then, got up out of their chairs at the Areopagus and just went and followed him back when he went to continue to preach the gospel. It's important to note here that whilst Paul changed his tactics, going from Thessalonica to Berea, up in Philippi, now down here in Athens, he never compromised on his faith. In a letter to the Corinthian church, Paul outlines his philosophy of ministry this way. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So whether Paul's in Philippi, or Thessalonica, or Berea, or here in Athens, Paul is sharp in his thinking about how to engage with culture as a means to share the gospel. In the synagogues, he speaks like a Jew. In the Areopagus, he speaks with the Greeks and the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he quotes their poems to win them as well. Which brings us back here to Dorset on Sunday morning. What about our culture? How do we go about winning a people for Jesus in our culture and at our time? See, I think in many ways we can read this passage and sympathize with, with what Paul's seeing. We're living in a culture that isn't really too dissimilar from Athens in this period. We're in a culture that thinks that science and knowledge is the absolute. That we've thought beyond God now. We don't need him because science has proven the way that the earth was made. And science has proven that the, the way that things are knit together. God doesn't fit in to our modern lifestyle now that we know so much about the universe. How do we tell a well-established culture that they're wrong when our Western culture thinks they've got everything sewn up, they know everything? How can we turn it around and say, no, you haven't, it's all about Jesus? See what I mean? While they had their philosophy and religion and mythology, Paul knew it wasn't going to save them. They couldn't think their way into heaven on this one. Only Jesus provided a route 
to God. And in the same way, in our Western culture, we can't continue to walk around blind to God. We can understand science and live our lives with ourselves at the center, giving in to every comfort, but none of that will save us, right? Only Jesus can. And it's a message of our culture that our culture needs to hear every bit as much as the Thessalonians or the Athenians did. Remember, Paul was disgusted with what he saw in Athens and the rightful place that Jesus should have taken up, being taken up with pointless idols that, that weren't going to save them at all. Do you feel this way when people promote things other than Jesus in our culture? Do you have that same level of disgust? See, Paul had it, and he was moved to action. They need to know about this. See, if I turned up in China and just handed my business card over, or didn't eat the food that was presented to me, or didn't understand a little bit of a way about that, how, how that culture worked, business wouldn't have been done in the same way. It, would, it just wouldn't. You needed to understand a bit of the culture of how they did things so that you could help do business and build links and hopefully do my job well. It would have created barriers to business being done had I not taken that time to understand the culture. My work actually gave me lessons before I went out there. So what do we need to do in our culture to bring the gospel the right way? Similarly, when Paul turned up at the Areopagus, he spoke with respect to the people there. He wasn't all guns blazing, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. He He didn't just call them out for being a bunch of idol worshippers and run off. Instead, he... He took the time to explain the gospel to them in ways that they would understand. So what do we need to do to bring the gospel to our culture? Because Paul was great at observing culture as he went. And we could be great culture observers too in the way that we share the gospel. Let me give you a couple of very trite examples. Everybody in my work very recently was talking about that uh, BBC TV series, The Bodyguard. You watched it? If you've not, I recommend it. It's good. Um, But how how about this as a starter for 10? The next time somebody in the office is talking about the bodyguard, I could use it to talk about God's absolute justice and how he had sent somebody to die in our place, to act as our bodyguard, so that we might be free to have relationship with God. Or with Christmas just around the corner, everybody's going to be talking about Father Christmas, the one guy who goes around the world giving good gifts to those who believe in him. Well, I know somebody who gives good gifts to those who believe in him as well. Let me tell you who he is. It's trite, isn't it? But any way that we can engage with culture to help people understand this Jesus. Let's be ready to share the gospel at all opportunities. Tim Keller said, contextualization is not giving people what they want. It's giving God's answers, which they probably don't want, to the questions they're asking in forms that they can comprehend. Contextualization is not giving people what they want. It's giving God's answers, which they probably don't want, to the questions they're asking in forms they can comprehend. And we think about it a lot here, even at at this church. We make Sunday mornings as warm and comfortable as we can. We have long conversations about Bible placement and where the chairs should be. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter that much, does it? Whether the chairs are like this or they're like that, or whether the Bibles are there or whether they're there. But we're trying to remove as many barriers to the gospel as we can so that people can come into this building on a Sunday and hear about Jesus and be saved. And that's what we're called to do. Remove the barriers so that you can talk about Jesus and see people saved. We need to share the the gospel with people in Poole and in Dorset. And we need to think how we're going to do it. You can use the culture around you to tell people about Jesus even this week. 
And finally, what about you? We're in a meeting place this morning discussing religion, discussing Jesus, and I'm here to tell you the same way that Paul told the Areopagus that there's only one way to eternal life, and it's Jesus. The God that Paul is so passionate in preaching about is here for you too. That God who was saving people 2,000 years ago as Paul went on his journey through Acts is here saving people this morning. Do you know we've actually seen three new people come to know Jesus in the last week at Gateway Church? It's amazing, isn't it? This gospel's alive and well. This is the real truth. It's amazing. As Paul said when he was talking to the Areopagus, there will be a judgment day where the whole world will be subject to his justice. On that day, Christians will hear that Jesus took all of, his, all of their sin on himself, exchanging our wrongdoing for his perfection, while those who don't know Jesus will receive the judgment for their misplaced worship and sin. It was a sobering place for Paul to end his message when he was speaking at the Areopagus, and it's a sobering place for us to end too, because that's the reality of it, guys. Actually, if we think we're doing people a favor by not bringing our religion to the workplace or, you know, well, I'm only going to make people uncomfortable if I talk about Jesus. Well, they won't thank you when they're standing there on judgment day. And actually, we're here on this earth with a mission to see God's word preached and to see his gospel spread. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then reach out to God today because he loves you and he died for you and you should turn to him. And for us Christians, are we preaching with an urgency that one day our friends and families and neighbors will have to stand before Jesus and give an account for their lives? Like I said, they won't thank you for sparing their feelings by not sharing the gospel. So a big challenge from Paul here this morning. How do you need to respond? Do you need to come to Jesus? Maybe even for the first time, we're going to take communion in a little while. And maybe that's a time for you to think, yeah, I believe this. Come and take communion for the first time. Do you need to be more bold in sharing your faith? Have you become too accustomed to your own culture that you're not urgent anymore in sharing your faith? Well, I'm going to pray in a moment that God will give you an opportunity this week to share the gospel in the places that he's put you. I don't know if you noticed in verses 26 and 27, Paul says this. From the one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Do you know what that means? God marked out their appointed times and the places they should live. You've been put here for a reason, guys. If you have a job, if you work, you've been put there for a reason. Whether you like it or not, you're there to preach the gospel. God's marked out these appointed times for you. He's putting people in front of you because he wants you to share the gospel with them. God has put you where you are today for a purpose. With your colleagues or neighbors, mums and dads at the school gate, there are all opportunities for you to share the gospel. You're there for a purpose. My question is, will you be faithful to it? And as the church in Thessalonica taught us, the gospel will always cause a reaction, but that doesn't mean we should stop sharing it. Let me pray, and then we'll come back and worship. Oh, Father, I I thank you so much that your gospel has been alive and well for thousands of years. I thank you, Lord, that, that as Paul went through 
Europe, he was seeing many people saved, and even today we're seeing people saved as a result of, of coming to know who you are. And Lord, we, we want to see more of it. I'm not ashamed of asking for more. Lord, I want to see more people come to know you. I want to see more people who aren't Christian among us on a Sunday morning, worshipping alongside us, worshipping the living God. Lord, I thank you that your gospel will always cause a reaction. For some, it will mean salvation. For others, it might mean anger. But Lord, give us a passion for sharing your word with people. I pray for us even this week. Give us opportunities to share our faith with people. Lord, we want to proclaim your word wherever we go. Help us to be sharp to culture, sharp to understanding these opportunities when they come. Lord Jesus, we want to see your gospel spread wherever we go. Would you work a mighty miracle among us, Lord? In your precious name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.